So I thought of you this morning. I was doing spelling bee, and the first word that I got was moxie. Okay. <laughs> and you are unimpressed. Okay. Unimpressed. I mean, that word's all over the place, and um, basically anybody who ever knows that I used to write a website called Ask Moxie, and that for a long time I was anonymous on the internet as Moxie, everybody always sends me things with Moxie on them, but I haven't gone as Moxie in I don't know how many years, right? So... Right, but it's a throwback to when you were asked Moxie, I was laid off dad, no one knew us. Yeah. And you should know that the pangram was monoxide, so you can't spell monoxide without Moxie. All right, well, that's kind of exciting. I can tell. So, yeah, just regain your senses and let's talk about Stuart Reynolds. And let's, we'll do this. This is going to be a fast one because you've got a ton to do. I've got a ton to do. Well, and we also have a ton of time. Um, like, we talked to Stuart for a long time. He, oh, my God, I look like Jabba the Hutt. <laughs> So for people out there, we will work on your accent. Then <laughs> going to move to Doug and I, um, Doug and I record these through a um, system called Riverside that lets us control each track separately, and um, we put the video on while we're recording so we don't talk over each other, and then we just dump the video. And so I'm lying down on my couch with the, with the laptop on my lap, and so the way I'm like, you know, when you're lying down with the camera and you're whole head blends into your whole body and i'm also wearing a shirt that's the same color as my skin practically <laughs> really genuinely very, like job an, of the hut. oh god it's an uncharacteristic slump it's an uncharacteristic slump i don't know i've hit that point in the whole packing journey in which i'm just like oh god kill me now given the fact that you are slumped over on something because you're Normal space is covered with boxes. Your house yeah. is in complete disarray, yeah. as is mine, by the way. I know. You keep talking um, about this, like, sympathetic move, whatever. I just need to tell you, nobody cares. Because you're not actually moving oh, anywhere. well, no, you don't care because you're not in a position to care about anything that's outside of your window of influence right well, now. Well, that, that's true. I can't. I got to say, you've moved, like, five or six times since I've lived here. Mm -hmm. I should have... Sympathy moved every time because you go through the pantry, you get rid of all the old food you don't want, you clean out the fridge, you, you get rid of all the old books, you vacuum up the dust bunnies. It's fantastic. I should just put you in charge of moving me every time because I haven't done all that stuff every time I moved. I just packed boxes. No, I'm the well, one who found diapers, cloth diapers in a box here. I know. <laughs> right? And we haven't This is had... part of our essential incompatibility. You I live know. a very different way than I do. I know. Okay, can we talk about Stuart? Well, I've known Stuart several years. I visited him up in Stratford with his wife, and she's just wonderful. His family's great. And I just love his story just because of the thing he's built for himself, especially given he built this entire career. He was like 43 and not sure what to do next. Then got a million followers on Vine, like was the premier Vine, sir. And then Vine just went away and his entire platform just dissolved. And he just like, all right, I'll do something else now. I mean, his resolve, his willingness to bet on himself and his talents and his knowledge of how to do it really inspires me. That's cool. I didn't know anything about him until you told me about him a few weeks ago and I started following him and started looking at his stuff and thought it was funny. And then when we talk to him, he's just so thoughtful. And it's interesting to see somebody who is our age and sort of at our level of, I don't want to say resignation, but kind of thoughtfulness about <laughs> life, who is 
creating content. You know what I mean? Because I think a lot of content creators are like, hey, 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 I'm right in your face. And he's not like that. His content is just funny, but it's sort of quietly funny. It's not bombastic and, you know, weird. It's just funny. Well, he's got his sense of humor. Yeah. Yeah. He knows it works and he's just leaning into it. I'm 53 years old. This is my view on life. Calm the hell down maybe a little bit. Right. And he has that new book coming out, which we'll talk about, this stupid apocalypse. The great thing is, too, is like you call him and say, hey, do you want to come on the podcast? He's like, absolutely, let's do yeah. it. He's just a mensch. Yeah. It's a treat just to sit back and talk to him. You, you leave a conversation with him feeling more relaxed than you started. Right. But not as relaxed as Magda is right now, lying back <laughs> on her couch. I know. Flesh-colored shirt. <laughs> Tart is better. Up tart, yeah. Slightly up tart. Talk about butter tarts. I'm slightly up tart. That's <laughs> <laughs> really good. It's, I love the fact that butter tarts are making their way south as a thing. It's how it happens. It's reverse manifest destiny, is what it is. <laughs> well, I mean, we can get ketchup chips at our regular grocery store. That's how it Where? starts. Where? At, at, at Aldi? My Meyer on Eight Mile. Oh, these are things I need to know. But I don't usually get them because I like the um, roast beef and onion chips oh, instead that are actually wow. vegan. Wow. The that's interesting. The magic of chemistry. Are you chips. vegan at all? No, I am not vegan, but I have stopped right. eating mammals. That's fair. I have a friend who also made that distinction as well. Actually, she didn't, but but my wife Shannon did. She said, I don't like eating anything, you know, and she listed off like this and this and this. And, and Shannon said, you just don't want to eat mammals. That's it. Yeah. That's all you don't want to eat. Yeah. They're, you're, you're willing to kill and eat anything else, but nothing about mammals. Yeah. Not the adorable ones. And it's just like gross to me now. It's not like a philosophical thing that I'm having a hard time yeah. maintaining. It's Same. Just- yeah, no, I haven't eaten meat in uh, about a year now, apart from fish and shrimp, that type of thing. So, Well, if you get a craving for something charred and meaty tasting, mm-hmm. if you can get your hands on those potato chips that really do taste like grilled steak, but are actually vegan. It's kind of fun. Okay. It's a very British flavored chip. I like it. It's good. It is kind of a British flavored chip, although I think they might have horseradish in it and these don't have horseradish. Right. right. Well, the people at uh, International Flavor and Fragrance are working overtime. <laughs> <laughs> do you have a lot of still British influence in the food you eat? I know the family came from Scotland way back in the day. but Yeah, um... I mean a little bit, but I mean Scottish food, as Mike Myers said, is based on a dare. So it's, it's more, you know, like I'm not into blood pudding. I don't like everything, but there's definitely an influence in what we eat. It's definitely British for sure. Yeah. Well, there's still some good pub grub in Stratford. You know, there's, yeah. oh, Shannon's there are not high, enough pubs down here. Yeah. I would like more pubs here in Canada. Though we were in the UK in February and uh, we were in London for business stuff and then went up to Scotland to see Shannon's pals because Shannon grew up there, went into, went to high school stuff there. <laughs> like by day two, we were like, oh, dear God, we need to leave this country because our livers will explode. We need to, we are going to die 
in Scotland because we were so out of practice. It was like, fuck, I forgot how much people drink up here. So, and they do. <laughs> and that's the reality of our times, right? You can walk into a pub in your twenties and just think, you know, they'll carry me out whenever. And now you gotta exactly. be like, hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Does my HMO cover this? <laughs> Don't even know what that is. <laughs> exactly. Damn it. <laughs> Do you know I threw that last little discussion point in? Yeah. The whole idea of health planning, estate planning. Yeah. What is that like in Canada? And what is your role in that as far as taking care of your parents when they really are going to need it? That aspect of like the healthcare aspect of it is really just navigating the space and navigating the system. That's mainly it. It's never like, how much is that going to cost? Which is, I'm really thankful for. And I'm a fierce proponent of public health care. It's like, I don't want, I want everyone to be triaged. I want, I want you, know, if there's three of us to show up <laughs> to the hospital, I want someone way smarter than all three of us to go, you need help first. Our healthcare system in Canada is in need of a lot of help and it needs to be restructured and it needs to be protected, but also fixed as well. There's a lot of bloated top end administrative people who are making way too much money, like making 10 times a nurse's salary and doing about 10 times less the work. And that's not right. That needs to get fixed. But that's led to some people thinking, well, we should have more, you know, we should have some more private services because then you'll be able to just, if you need an MRI, you'll just be able to like, you know, you'll be able to pay for one and just go get one. And the logic behind that kind of bothers me because it's like, well, no, because the public is paying for MRIs. We should just be able to get MRIs as we need them. Right. Uh, you shouldn't have to jump the queue. If my kid needs an MRI and you have, you know, $15,000, you get to go first. That's not right. That doesn't make any sense. Like, right. If you need to go first, you need to go first. Otherwise, get in line, buddy. As far as my folks go, like I said, it's navigating the system. Like my dad has dementia and Parkinson's and all of his health care is free. So that includes like doctor care. That includes appointments. And of course, free, right? Everyone's like, it's not really free. You have to pay for it in taxes. It's like, yes, like roads. Like roads are free, except for toll roads. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, apart like, so my dad's doctor's appointments and uh, all that kind of stuff. And his medication is is fairly heavily subsidized. I think it's maybe $6 a month or something like that for whatever he needs. And then his support workers that come who do like, who shower him and get him ready throughout the week. And the day program he goes to is heavily subsidized. It costs $13 a day for him to be there in a day program from, from 10 o'clock until three o'clock and he gets fed, which is great. Wow. Um, and then one day a week on Fridays, we have a private support worker coming in for a few hours and she's great. She's 30 bucks an hour and she's worth every penny, which is awesome. But the rest of his support work is, is done by like, we don't have to pay for it. It's just part of the system. But again, it's part of, you have to know how to navigate that system. That was the biggest challenge with my dad with Parkinson's and dementia was that it meant that myself and Shannon, my wife and my mom had to really kind of dig in to be like, how does this system work? Well, who would we talk to? What do we, I don't know exactly what I need, but I think I need someone to help me with this. Well, that means you talk to this department and talk to these people. That was the hardest part, but thankfully there've been no bills, which is good. So. I don't actually know anyone who argues in favor of the American like yeah. pay for play system, right? Like I, yeah. you know, but obviously somebody is in favor of it because we the have people it, making but money. I don't That's who know any of those people, right? But their argument is, oh well, you know, these Canadians and basically like these people in every other 
country on right. the planet that have yeah. um, public health care, they still have to navigate this horrible system. Well, we still have to navigate this horrible system that instead of having six layers has six by six by six layers. <laughs> it's really interesting you say that because, you know, I remember talking to a friend almost 10 years ago, an American friend, and she was saying, well, we just can't afford to do it here because there's 10 times the people. And I was like, well, no, that's the how the whole system works. Everybody puts right. money into the pot. Right. And there's 10 times more people. There's 10 times as much money, theoretically. But now I find like whenever I post anything about healthcare online, I get a just a barrage of Americans going, yes, you're right. You're absolutely right. We should fix our system. And, and, I, and it's boggled my mind. It's like, I've known so many American friends who have gone through financial turmoil because of health issues. And it's like, dear God, for a country that bases itself on the market economy, don't you want everyone in the market? Like, don't you want people back out there right away as opposed to like four people buying more boats? Right. You need to get people back out and back in there making money, earning money and and not being a burden on society as such and, and not going bankrupt and not playing at all. It's fascinating. Well, that's the standard myopia. The whole idea of you need to have quarterly profits. And if you think longer yeah. term- that's just too far down the pipeline for people who are just looking at their balance sheets and saying, why aren't your margins bigger? Well, yeah. Elizabeth Warren wrote a book back in the 90s in mm. which she crunched the numbers and found out that the leading cause of bankruptcy in the United States was medical debt. Ridiculous. That's so direly depressing. And yeah. it's only gotten worse. Oh, you've got cancer? You loser. What a moron. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I know people who work for hospitals and for health insurance companies who can't afford to get necessary procedures done because yeah. their insurance through the insurance company isn't even good enough and they won't get approved for whatever it is. It's shocking. And I think it's, you know, I know there's lots of mixtures of like private and public health care. And I always get pushback from people who say, well, even public health care, your, your general physician, your GP is private because they have to pay their own bills. They get paid by the government, but they, they still have to run a business. And it's like, well, yeah, kind of, but they're being paid all the same rate from the government, except for recently, which is happening, which is most distressing in Canada, is there's two things that's happening with healthcare. One is that it needs to be fixed desperately. The provinces run the healthcare system. The funding is helped by the federal government. And the emergency departments across Canada some of them are closing or having restricted hours, which is bonkers to me. Absolutely right. bonkers. There were kids who were in a house party who got stabbed about 15 minutes from here. They drove another 15 minutes to the closest ER and were told, no, you have to drive another 15 minutes to get to the one that's open. And they're like in the back. Ah! Luckily, they all survived. But I mean, it's like, good Lord, like this is stupid. Wow. And then emergencies don't have business hours. No, exactly. It's like, we're going right. to close at six. It's like, what? It's like, I hope you don't <laughs> get hit by a car at 601. And it's craziness to me. And there's also, there was uh, uh, in BC, there's a town whose emergency department doesn't have a doctor on staff. So if the nurses are faced with a, an emergency requiring a doctor, they are instructed to call 911. It's like for a paramedic to show up. First of all, the people that are pushing in Canada for private systems are usually people who stand to gain. And it's been really interesting when I posted some stuff on Twitter, I'd get pushback from people in Canada saying, no, 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 this is the better way to go. we got to let go of this public system. And I would do a little digging and find it. Oh, you have a vested interest in healthcare company. You work for such and such, or you are such and such. It's like, this is awful. The big issue is that there's not enough doctors and nurses. 
So it doesn't matter how private it is. It's not like if they offer more money, they're suddenly going to pop up a bunch of doctors going, well, actually, I've been trained this whole time and just decided not to use it until now. <laughs> right. So exactly. why do you think that is? Because well, we've talked with a lot of medical people here who say we're out of the medical industry because we're just tired of dealing with it. It's not a question of burnout. It's just a question of there's too much I mean, our ability to care crisis, to people. There's a huge crisis, especially in women's health here, because malpractice for uh, mm. delivering babies is just so astronomical. And because all these states putting in these regressive laws about women's health care. And so people just aren't going into gynecology or they're getting out of it. And then I also think like, you know, your case in BC, I'm guessing that the reason they don't have a doctor is because it's a rural area. So how do they see a case in which there is money to be made in a rural area from having healthcare enough to fund privately a doctor? Like that doesn't make it's a fundamental misunderstanding of the free market. Exactly. That's a really good example of that is in our our town of 36,000 people here. The doctors used to be at a, a building that had free parking and it was a lovely building, it had been renovated and they might have grown out of it and it could have been a bit more purpose built. It wasn't a purpose built building. And they moved to another building where they were offered free rent. You now have to pay for parking, which I hate. Mm. I don't mind paying for parking at the hospital because that money goes to the hospital. I think you should have to pay double to park at the hospital if you're going to the maternity ward for good news. They should vet you at the gate. They should be, what are you coming here for? Well, I'm here because my mother's sick. And she's like, well, okay, let's just park for free. What are you here for? Well, I'm here because my wife just had a baby and I'm going to go up to visit. I'm taking this teddy bear. It's $50 to park. You know, It's like, yes. great. Then you'd be like, you're whatever. Parking for two Absolutely. Now. <laughs> exactly. So they moved to this building where you have to pay for parking because they got cheaper rent and all that kind of stuff. And it's whatever. That's annoying. We never pay for parking. We always go and take the free ticket and then drive around and keep looping through for their free time. And just like, we will waste so much paper because it goes to a private company. And I hate the fact that it goes to a private company. But anyway, my story was essentially there was a, a medical lab in the building, which was very convenient, but it was a private company. And I remember going in there the first time and there was two nurses and they were lovely and they were very fine. They were run off their feet, really, really busy, but they got things done. That was fine. I had to go back another time, a number of months later, went back in to get blood taken. And there was one nurse working the front desk and taking blood and receiving samples and all that kind of stuff. And she had about six people and four people waiting. And I said, is it just you here? She goes, yes, it is. She reached over and grabbed a card and said, here's my head office. Complain about this. This is terrible. So they didn't want to pay for two nurses because it wasn't making them enough money. Within about four months of that, they shut down entirely because there wasn't enough money to be made. And it's like, this is why healthcare needs to be a public service as opposed to a profit service or for-profit service. Because it's like libraries, as I've said in a video before. It's like, you don't, there's not a lot of private libraries popping up. So it's not a money-making game. No one's going to get rich off of being in a library. It's the same idea. It needs to be a public service. And I, I, don't, I don't know why it's every country doesn't do it like that. It doesn't make any sense to me. Even UK's two-tier system drives me insane as well, which we've navigated briefly four years ago with our, our youngest son we were in the, when I was in the UK with him and I had to make a choice. I was like, will I go to the NHS system and wait for a day and a half or do I pay $350 and get blood taken at a private clinic? Well, I've got $350. So yeah, I'll do that instead. Even at the time I felt dirty. I was like, no, right. I shouldn't be yeah. doing that. But also at the same time, why isn't the NHS just better? You know what I mean? Right. So, right. I you know, I mean, I'm 20 minutes from Canada and mm-hmm. 
there are a lot of people who just come over to get things done like MRIs, stuff like sure, that, like absolutely. tests that they can yep. just pay cash for. And it's not even that expensive. Like I got yeah. an x-ray and I paid $50 cash for it. So to come right. over, you know, if you need an x-ray in Canada and they're telling you, hey, you got to wait three days yeah, 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 or you can just zip over here and it costs what, $12 this to come across the bridge and then yeah. you pay $50 cash yeah, and then you stop and buy some American snack foods on your way home, right? Like, Watch McCollins. milk, cheap milk. Our milk is very cheap. There was a thing for a while when people were observing Daisy truck drivers, like Indian, Pakistani, yeah. Canadian truck drivers yeah. who were coming back up to Canada, were stopping at American grocery stores and buying just like gallons and gallons and gallons and gallons <laughs> and gallons of milk, which you can because they're stable here. They sit in the truck. They're not in bags, right? Right, right, and right. So yeah, okay. Nice dig. People- nice dig. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, I got that in there. And people are like, what is going on? And thought it was some like super nefarious plan. And then it turned out it was completely not nefarious at all. It was sure. just that our milk is so much cheaper. And <laughs> yeah, they were exactly. just bringing them home to yeah. make Pamir. Yeah. Too funny. Like Occam's razor always works, but it, yeah. it's just funny. Like what's more expensive here and what's more expensive on the other side of the border. And I think people who live in the middle of the countries don't realize that there's this whole calculation that people who live on the border. Totally. Yeah. Are can... Always doing like, how much milk do I have to buy? Um, one time I was going over to Canada um, for a conference. And as I was walking in through the parking thing, so I went in and I'm just sitting there waiting forever to talk to a guy. And there are these three Canadian ladies who had come over to go to lunch and to go shopping. And all they had to do was declare what they had purchased and sure. pay the yeah. duty on it. They said the one thing they thought the Americans had on the Canadians mm-hmm. is if this was an American like sort of station, they would have had a separate short line for people who just needed to pay money. Right. Yeah, and they yeah, wouldn't yeah. have had to wait, the right? Thing. Like they said, Americans are so much better at taking money yeah. than Canadians yeah. are. And I was like, they really are. USA, USA, we're good <laughs> at taking money, right? Yeah. And then I have this episode when I'm leaving because there was this guy who had come in who was trying to get everyone to pay attention to him there. <laughs> and he had a ventriloquist dummy with him instead of just having his ventriloquist dummy which he claimed was like his job right it wasn't like sure. he just was it wasn't like he was no one's admitting to that as a hobby yeah yeah it wasn't his friend right he, he had the ventriloquist dummy on his hand and when the canadian agent was asking him these questions like no. show me your passport and blah 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 he was having the ventriloquist dummy answer the canadian that agent doesn't and so this agent was like, oh, what the fuck? Just <laughs> get out of my face and send him to the office, right? Exactly. Straight to cavity search, both of you. Of, he kind of thought that he was like hot shit and that people were oh, going to be impressed no. with him. And I mean, it's everyone impressive. everyone in the room was like, oh, if there is a Canadian gulag, that is where you are about That's to where you're go going, man. Exactly. because of your attitude. So <laughs> the ventriloquist like mummy. being together. Exactly. Yes. The ventriloquist dummy was attempting to hit on me as I was walking out of the- Just the dummy, which is very impressive. Right, right. (laughs) Yeah. And so I was just like, hey, I'm walking out. You're stuck in Canada for- Wow. Who knows? A Canadian jail for the next 20 years. So I walk out- Which are pretty nice. No, I'm kidding. They're horrible. I don't know. They're terrible. Nobody wants to be there. 
I don't know. They probably give you coffee in Nanaimo bars every day at three, right? Like, I don't want to find out. Timbits, right? Can we have a discussion about prison Timbits? Craziness. Yeah, that was talking about um, excitement relative to time frame. That was the most <laughs> exciting time I have ever had on Canadian <laughs> territory. <laughs> now, how long you had that story in the chamber, Magda? Because here is our first Canadian guest. It's All of a sudden, it. I don't know where we go from here because we got off into a whole rant about intracontinental commerce. I think it's pretty obvious that you have an attraction not just to bad boys, but to bad puppets. That's exactly it. And that's why you've held on yes. to that story. Like, you know what? I can kind of imagine our life together on the run from the Canadian Border <laughs> Services. <laughs> One of my favorite things, and they don't do it all the time now, which is really frustrating, but you do your passport thing, which is a whole, it's a mess. They're implementing a new system, but you do your passport thing and you get through and you have to give your piece of paper that says, you know, you're legit to the border services agent. And they say, welcome home. And I'm like, yeah, cool. Whereas like the U.S. guards are like the Highway 61 movie. Uh, which is a fantastic movie about these people that, that transport a dead body from Thunder Bay down to New Orleans, which is a direct line essentially from Highway 61. And the U.S. border guard is played by Jello Biafra. And he says, oh, Now, wow. America's like my home. What would make me let you, a stranger, into my home? And that's kind of the attitude that we get. It's like everyone's like, I find it funny as a Canadian as well. It's always like, You're coming here to stay forever. It's like, No, I'm coming for the cheap beer the good weather, and I'm getting the hell out. You are no threat for me whatsoever. I'm going to spend way too much money. I'm going to forget about the exchange rate, and then I'm going to come home. I've only made a, a U.S. Customs Guard laugh once, and that was when I was going to L.A., was the Toronto airport, and he said, like, where are you going? I said, Los Angeles. And he said, where are you going there? I said, meetings. What do you do for a living? And I said, I make videos on the internet, which is a terrible answer. And he yeah. said, what kind of videos? And I said, comedy videos. And I said, you ever seen like the one about explaining Canada Day to the U.S.? And he went, oh, that's you. Well, have a good time. Take care, eh? And I was like, oh, wow. He smiled, laughed, stamped my passport, and just sent me right into his home. It was nice. Any opportunity you get to throw some star power around to get where you need I to will. go. Oh, I'll ring it out, man. I'll ring it out for sure. You must be accustomed to that by now. Just people fawning over you everywhere you go. Oh. Um, laying out rose petals in your path. Pretty much. Exactly. <laughs> Now, there's your segue point. I was wondering where we were going to go after yeah. we had this whole conversation about uh, how healthcare is lacking everywhere, but at least yeah. Canadians get to look at each other and say, it's not as bad as it is in the States. So let's at least <laughs> have that in our, in our optimism here. That's like living in a crappy house and looking at your window at your neighbors, which is on fire and going, ah, yeah. we can still tidy yeah. up. We could probably put in a new dormer up on the second floor, but at least it's not... <laughs> flaming <laughs> i think our previous four or five or 12 guests have all been talking about how horrible dealing with the medical system is because we're all dealing with parents or kids or ourselves or you oh know, it's yeah it's indicative of the age 50 right yeah so. absolutely <laughs> well then when you talk about alleviating the scourge of potential bankruptcy Mm -hmm. The whole idea, because many Americans our age are just afraid to get sick for that very reason. Yeah. We, there has to be so much stuff in place. Do I get supplemental insurance to pay for how crappy my regular insurance is? Right. It's Crazy. a wonderful dance. 
But apart from that, your parents are there with you in Stratford. Yeah. And are you their only child or are you, for all intents and purposes, their only child when it comes to shepherding them into their golden years? Uh, I'm their favorite child. That's all that matters. No, yeah. I'm just kidding. Uh, it's myself and my sister. My sister's eight years younger than me, and we have had very different relationships with my family. They're both good, but just for to give you an idea, when I left home, I was 22 when I left home, uh, but my dad was high ma- upper management, making decent money. We'd go to Hawaii. We'd go to Florida. It was all good. Everything was great. And then literally within about two years of me leaving home, my dad was let go from his job. And then suddenly he was unemployed at 47 and had no money and so much debt from living a lifestyle that was way beyond their new means. And my sister grew up in her teen years with that. <laughs> so I, I grew up with, in a bounty. Oh, wow. And then yeah. she grew up in like, we have no money. Now it all turned out okay. It ended up sort of, it was, lasted about sort of five or six years, but very, very different experiences. But those are- Five very big years very to a 14-year-old. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, so big. What's been really interesting with my dad having dementia is that it's actually kind of brought my sister and I closer because, it, as I've said before, for all intents and purposes, I kind of lost my dad about three and a half years ago. He knows who I am, but I can't share anything with him. I can't, like, even the weather is hard to share. Sometimes it hits, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it's like, it's a beautiful day out. And he's like, like this is like a month ago. It's a beautiful day today. It's gorgeous. Lots of sunshine today. It's going to be hot. And he says, yeah, well, as long as I get the snow cleared from the roads, it'll be good. And I'm like, okay. It feels like I've lost him three and a half years ago. And I feel my sister felt the same. So we were able to kind of like bond over that and kind of decide of like looking at the situation, how to help my mom the best we could. We felt that was best served by opening the lines of communication as much as possible and as bluntly as possible and no being around the bush, no no polite talk or worrying about that. It's just like, let's just get to the nitty gritty. And that's been really great. I mean, the circumstances suck, but it's been good to have myself and my sister to kind of like, you know, tag team help my folks, which is good. So she's local too. She is. Yeah. No, she, she lives in Stratford as well. So it's great. That's just a great thing. I mean, both Magda and I are very far from our parents. Right. Uh, and we're both oldest well, children. Let it be known that my parents moved away from me. Like, <laughs> I moved back to be well, near my, them. My parents moved away from us. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. They both spread out. Yeah. And now they're wondering, geez, what did we do? Well, right. exactly. Well, yeah. I think people don't they underestimate the importance and power of a support network. And that can just be something as simple as like yesterday, my dad went to the day program, but our car was in the garage. So it's like, I usually I take him, but I said to my sister, can you get out of work to take him? She's like, sure. And I mean, that's, it's great. It's like that convenience it's is amazing. It's little things that just add up to Yeah, totally. They're priceless. Yeah. Yeah. So now it's interesting you mentioned dementia just because our last episode was about unpaid caregivers mm-hmm. uh, for dementia patients, of which there are like 11 million in the States alone. Sure. The, the real revelation for me was how similar caring for dementia patients is like improv comedy. It's all about totally. yes and. There, there's no... <laughs> Absolutely. There's no value in correcting somebody. There's no value in shaming someone into letting them know they forgot something. You just kind of like when your dad says, you know, we'll get the snow up and that'll be fine. You're like, yep. And we got a yeah. snowman going in the backyard. Sure. She called it the uh, the therapeutic fiblet. <laughs> yes, it's true. That was like a big revelation for my mom because my mom would keep trying to correct him. And it's, I mean, I, I, I think... I, with dementia specifically and Alzheimer's, so any sort of similar type of thing to mention Alzheimer's, is terrible for the person who suffers from it, 
it is 10 times worse for the, their partner. Little stuff like my mom saying, you know, she'll be watching the news on television and she'll want to talk about it. She'll be like, I can't believe that so-and-so did that. Do you, what did you think about that? There's nothing there anymore. And that person's been there for decades is now unable to comprehend and process and engage with you whatsoever. So you've, you've essentially, as her doctor said to her, you're continually grieving the loss of your husband every day. And now he's kind of gone. And now you're left with this guy who looks like him, kind of. And it's drawing out. Oh, it's inevitable. And it's got to be really painful. Yeah. Painful, but also comedic. My mom. You have to be. That's how you preserve your your fantasy to say, hey, it's your birthday again. Really? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, two things. One, my uh, he was my dad was off on some tangent about something nonsensical. And my mom said, I I just thought I'd test him. And I said, I jumped out of a plane this afternoon. And he stopped (laughs) thought and he went, you're just being sarcastic. And it was like, oh God, okay, this is a little bit of moment of clarity there to realize that's not real, but everything else is bizarre and bonkers. Like moments later, he's talking to a bunch of people that no one else can see in the corner. I air quoted there, talking to a bunch of people and turning to my mom going, I'll get to you in a minute. You know, it's like, it's just bizarre. (laughs) But, you know, we take my mom for breakfast on Friday mornings and she got in the car one morning and I said, how was last night with dad? And she said, well, he had a fall and I heard a thump and I was really concerned and I went in. I was like, oh no. And she's like, it was really, really terrible. And I said, is he okay? And she went, yeah. Oh, God. So that's where they're at. That's where they're at in the journey yeah. now. It's like, yeah, I'm glad he's the okay. The humor just gets darker. Yeah, it's and like, darker. oh, God. I was like, yeah. you know, if you ever, we ever find him at the bottom of the stairs, I'm going to look for a, you know, a size five shoe print in the back of his spine for my mother. So, <laughs> God. I think, like, so my grandmother um, died of Alzheimer's and my uncle and I were like the people who really visited her the most. She was in a memory right. care facility. And it was so interesting to me to observe the other people who were in her memory care facility because mm-hmm. my uncle and I were in child and grandchild relationships with her. Mm-hmm. And so when we were talking to Emily Gavin, the person talking about being a caregiver for dementia, she was saying that. It, technically, it's like a LIFO s- situation, like the last in skills are the first out skills. Right. So it really is like losing all of your adult capabilities mm-hmm. first, mm-hmm. which I think makes sense for children caring for a parent. It just seemed so brutal for the people who were visiting people in the memory care center who were their spouses and had been their partners. Like, how do you oh go from God. having a romantic equal relationship with someone to being their actual caregiver and not being able to trust the decisions they're making or know that they are not even understanding those decisions. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's horrendous. And I think it's, you know, there was a period of time in my dad's journey as they refer to it with dementia, where he had tremendous fear. Like in 2019, uh, we were in Vancouver for my birthday and I'd flown the family out and stuff and it was fun. It was, was supposed to be fun for the weekend. My dad just spent the whole weekend terrified that we were going to get ripped off because we were trying to buy the hotel. No one had said the word dementia at that point at all. But he, I remember being at the airport and just feeling like we flew back. We're waiting for everyone to get their bags. I'm sitting with my dad and he just turned to me and he was like, we just have to be really careful because I'm, I'm sure these people are going to take advantage of us. And the look in his eyes was like heartbreaking. It was like, oh my God, this is supposed to be fun. 
And then all he's done has been panicked all weekend, which then ruined, of course, my mom's weekend as well. It's not about ruining the weekend. It's just about that notion of like, God, I can take crazy. I, I love crazy. I love the fact that my dad said about two months ago, is that butterfly hatched yet? Because if, if it's going to hatch soon, we better build the landing strip. What the fuck does that mean? I don't know. But I'm I'm happy with that. It's like, yeah, it's like the improv thing that like you said. It's like, great. It's like, sure. Absolutely. We'll get right on that. It's the stuff where he's scared and it's like, don't be scared. Like you're fine. Everything's good. And I think that's part of the improv as opposed to people with dementia is and parents is, uh, is offering, you know, a companion for their, their mental journey, but not making it scarier in any way. Like it's, everything's good. And, you know, just everything's a reassurance constantly, constantly, constantly. Exactly. Yeah. Because the best improv comedians take care of their scene partners. Exactly. Exactly. Speaking of your nuclear family, you've got your parents around, you've got your sister around, and your boys are both nearby, right? Are they both in Toronto? They're both in Toronto, which is about a couple of hours from here. Both doing really well, thankfully. I mean, they're they're 21 and 24. Our youngest is a social media content creator, does very, very well, and he's very good at it too. And our oldest is uh, into audio and audio, audio engineering and sound engineering. He's an award-winning podcast producer. He's working with big companies and corporations doing internal podcast production and sound production and movie sound and all that kind of stuff. So I'm very fortunate in that regard. And the thing with kids, is when they're younger, you can be their manager. If When they get older, you're, you're lucky if you're their consultant. And that's kind of where we're at now with the boys. It's like, we'll get consulted on things now. And that's great. And you have made a career last several years mm -hmm. making videos on the internet and they grew up watching that. So mm -hmm. when you had discussions about what they would want to do with themselves, how Gregor became the star he is, mm -hmm. how Owen became the technician he is, and you talked about college and training and ambition and so forth. What were those discussions like? Did they ask you at all what life as an entrepreneurial content creator was like? Or how did you build no, up that level I, I of mean, confidence? In we it? never had direct conversations about like, I want to do this. What do you think? Or what's it like doing what your job is? Because I think they had a front row seat for what we did. Like when we, I've been doing videos online for social media as a full-time gig for 10 years. And the reason I got into it is because uh, we ran out of options. We were fiscally screwed. We had like the notice on the front door of the house. We were having lentils for dinner every night. We had a very successful business for the 10 years prior and then lost essentially everything. They were, when we sold our company that was, that had fell apart, we sold the remnants of it. We ended up having a little bit of a windfall for about six months. And the boys referred to that time as the limousine days um, because we literally rented a limousine twice in those times. Like just <laughs> foolish. So we'd gone through so much stress and we're like, fuck it. Let's just get limos everywhere. So I think they've had a front row seat to the life of an entrepreneur. So they did, they weren't, it wasn't romanticized. They were like, no, it's pretty shitty sometimes. And, and we can tell that dad is super stressed and mom's super stressed. And then the flip side of that is that, oh, now they get to go places and they can just decide to come with us to see us do this. Or, you know, there's, there's a freedom that was balanced out with a absolute terror. And I think that our oldest son, Owen, he would do anything for just a stable clock in clock out job. Our youngest has just always wanted to be the boss of it, whatever he does. He's, he's never going to work for somebody else. So he's he's quite content to kind of ride those highs and lows. Because you are now Canada's favorite dad or the internet's favorite dad. That's I right. Should, I should specify because the internet is global. The love for me knows and, no uh, borders. We don't wanna, exactly. Right. We don't want to confine you to uh No, don't, to don't, your don't restrict my love. Don't restrain it. 
So when you create your videos, what makes you feel relevant when you make them? I think probably the first thing is I'm a big fan of brevity. People are trading their time. I'm getting their time in exchange for them watching me. So I have to give them something back. I have a kind of a, a, a credo, which is entertain first, sell second. So if I'm doing any brand work, that's kind of the motto I try to run under. It's like, this has to be kind of funny on its own. If there's a messaging that has to be sold afterwards, it's like, that should just be incidental. That should be kind of like, oh, well, I still, I had fun watching it anyway. Um, but that's the battle, right? Because so yeah. many people, so many people who would pay you for your skills yeah. would be advertised first and create later. Yeah. And it's dumb. I think that, you know, the, there's, I understand there's arguments like with the agencies are like, we want, we want our product shown, our service shown, our brand shown in the first two seconds. And it's like, people will tune out because their, their logic is, you know, retention dives after a short period of time on videos anyway, like just naturally the majority of retention will, but then it just dies quicker when you stick a product, when you say, Hey, this is an ad without yes. saying, Hey, this is an ad, you know, as opposed to just showing a, lo- a branders or a logo of something like that. People don't want to be tricked, but people do genuinely love being sold to. Yeah. Right. Super like Bowl you ads. can show me ads. something that is going to improve my life. Yeah. Oh my God. And show me how to use it. Yeah. Exactly. I love that. Exactly. I think it's important to be aware of the fact that you're, you know, that the medium is so based on authenticity and, and intimacy. I'm very aware of the fact that the majority of people consume my videos in their hands. It's so intimate. So you kind of, just, you don't want to betray people and betray that trust and that intimacy that people have with you by trying to trick them. Wow, someone could be in the bathroom right now listening to this. They could be. Exactly. And don't worry, the door's shut and the fan's on. No one can hear. Let loose. (laughs) I just love the fact that you bet on yourself all the time. And I know there are people our age Mm. who are faced with this basic push-pull between what they're responsible for and what their opportunities are. Yeah. If their kids are out of the house... If their parents are still healthy, there might be a glimmer to start being maybe creative. And I'm having sure. a lot of discussion with people my age about that, mm-hmm. about threading the needle in the Venn diagram to become a creative person and bet on yourself yeah. that someone else is going to want to read this, subscribe to your Substack. Sure. How has your overall opinion of the work you do and your place in that world, how has that evolved since you started making these videos, making vines way back in the day? I've learned that there are moments where I think I've created something amazing. And it turns out that's the least successful stuff I do. And then there's times when I create things, I think, I don't know, whatever, who cares? <laughs> Just put it out there. And people are like, this is amazing. Wow. You really, it blows th- up, yeah, right? you, know, you really <laughs> thought about this. This is such a unique angle. I'm like, I did not think about this, but yeah, I know it said that out loud. I go, oh, thank you. That's the thing. I think, especially when you get older, you, I think people feel like they have to fit into a certain model in their head and a certain paradigm or, or, or archetype in their head. Uh, of what it means to be their age. And that has changed, you know, for I'm 53 and what it means to be 53 is light years away now from what it was when even my dad was 53. And then, and then even further away from when his dad was 53, it's not a case about being immature or being irresponsible or being self-centered. It's not about that at all. I think it's more a case of being like, I'm able to do more things now thanks to technology and the world and society and whatever. So why not? So also who cares? That's the also, that's the other big thing. I like the punk ethos a lot. I like that idea of like, just get up and do it. If you suck, try not to suck as much next time. Well, that's, yeah, we should be clear. Stuart does come from a punk rock background and musician background. That's evident by looking at me. 
You're not wearing the snapback cap, right? So that was a direct shot across the bow. But I am wearing a button up <laughs> shirt from Costco. People will say, but the internet's forever. Well, if it's terribly racist, misogynistic, <laughs> violent, yes, these are concerns that are well warranted. Otherwise, you're just going to be one more idiot on the internet. And the problem you'll find pretty quickly when you make content for the internet is being found, not people finding it. The internet's forever, but it's really hard to find. Same thing with podcast episodes. Yeah. It's one of those things where I will see a huge spike in our uh, listenership and our subscribers just because people are discovering sure. our, our back episodes. Yeah. And that's the lovely thing about doing a podcast. It's one of those things where once you break ground somewhere, people are going to decide they want to see what else you've done and they're going to go back and find you. And all of a sudden, you know, there's yeah. a whole spurt in your awareness and popularity. Yeah. It's life is marketing as a few people have said before. And that's, that's very true. Right. I just came across the Schwarzenegger quote, you know, early to bed, early to rise, work like hell and advertise. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, I think that it's a parabola because remember in the very early days of the internet, you know, like mm. 1996, sure. 1998, it was almost like if you wanted to find something on the internet, even if you knew that it existed, just like trying to figure out how to find it it was almost like playing battleship like you knew there were battleships there and you just were like trying to guess like what word did i search there was that whole point in time when people would be looking for like you know a poodle and so they would type in poodles.com because that was your closest guess yeah that's how i find it right and then we went into this phase where there was enough out there that people were realizing there had to be some sort of organized whatever and that you could do marketing and it was kind of easier to find stuff. And now I think we're on the other side of the parabola because there's so much out there that if you just search for it, you're still going to get a whole lot of other yeah. stuff before you get to the thing that you actually yeah, want. Yeah. Like uh, uh, the poodle thing is a good example. It's like in the, back in 98 or 96 or whatever, you'd look for poodles and there was maybe a hundred poodles online. And now there's a hundred billion. So it's, you know, it's, it's hard to find poodles. It's hard to find the poodle that you're looking for. Do you have a new book coming out? Is this, when is your press tour starting? I know you have some dates scheduled throughout the province. Yeah. Is this, so the book. Is this your first press stop for the stupid apocalypse? Um, it's kind of been ongoing a little bit in the past month or so, which is nice. The book comes out officially in the U.S. and Canada on September 19th. It's called Welcome to the Stupid Apocalypse, Survival Tips for the Dumbageddon. It's a collection of essays that talk about politics and Canada and U.S. and marriage and tech and social media and family and all that kind of stuff. I had said to the the publisher's publicist, was saying, you know, you could do like a book signing and all that kind of stuff. I was like, well, how can I make money instead? How does that sound? And uh, <laughs> they're like, well, I mean, you're welcome to as long as you promote the book. And so I thought, well, let's do a show instead. So then Shannon and I are going to go to uh, to do these shows instead of book signings, which are ticketed events. They're happening. So far, it's happening in Ottawa, Calgary, and Winnipeg, and uh, Windsor, Ontario. Right across the bridge. Right across We're there. the bridge. It's called In Conversation with Brittle Star, moderated by his wife. It's kind of a chat that talks about us, talks about the book. A little bit of a comedy show. I mean, it is, I think that Shannon, Shannon hates me on camera. However... I'm terrified to be in a room full of people unless I have the microphone. If I have a microphone mm-hmm. on my hand, you're all done for. I'm I'm Mr. Confident. <laughs> I can absolutely stay up there. I can you can say like kill four hours. I'd be like, sure, not a problem. <laughs> I got a tight 240. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> 
Shannon is very similar to myself in that regard. So it should be a fun time because Shannon's, like I said, she's quite brave when she gets a mic in her hand. And she also really likes making well, fun of Well, you had great chemistry on the morning show thing. I mean, well, she definitely you. moderated you in that sense. That's a strong formula. The whole idea of, you I know, Riddle Star gets wacky and Shannon rolls her eyes. She moderates yes. me. Back in his days, like after he broke up with Christy Brinkley, that was one of his. She moderates me. Yeah, such a good song. It was our wedding song, actually, Shannon and I's wedding oh, song. Yeah. yeah, she moderates me by Billy Joel. <laughs> now, so the essay is about do they have a particular um, age range that they appeal to? Are um, they from the I mean, perspective of a 53 year old man? Because I, I want to talk about finding markets our age sure. because I think people. I don't realize how robust they are. Well, I think that's just, that's key. I think is I think especially working in social media, there's an assumption that you know it's eight to thirteen year olds or eighteen to twenty four year olds, and that's it. Uh, and that's obviously not the case. Like there's a there's a whole segment of society that's massive that is consuming all the same mediums, but just different content on those mediums, like TikToks and Instagram stuff and whatever. I think I've been fortunate to kind of find that kind of having started my social media career at 43, I was already old uh, in the eyes of the internet. And it wasn't until in the past sort of, you know, five or so years that, that brands and agencies and platforms have realized, oh, wait a minute, this isn't just an old guy doing funny old guy stuff for the benefit and enjoyment of young people who think they're never going to get old. But this is actually someone who's creating content that is going to relate to those people who are, you know, 40 and up. 45 and up, 50 and up. I, I remember saying to someone recently, you know, 65 and older, I kill on YouTube demographics. It's like, that's the people who are watching the stuff is that, that age group. But of course, <laughs> those people go on holidays, they buy cars, they, you know, they buy cottages, they have lots and lots of disposable income. Uh, not everyone, of course, but a lot of them do. They're not sort of just getting started. They're trying to live their life as best they can. So it's very appealing in that regard. The essays in the book themselves I mean, of course, they're written from the perspective of me as a 50-something-year-old because I can't avoid that. I'm kind of like an actor, like in the sense of being an actor like Jack Nicholson. This is what you get. You know, I show up <laughs> and this is me. But also, I try to take a, a broader idea, like the welcome to the stupid apocalypse isn't about saying, look at these stupid people. It's more about me saying, we're all idiots and dear God, let's take a breath and a step back. And let's not uh, get too upset about this, 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 this. Like, let's all realize the ridiculousness of the situation. Let's try to be nicer to each other. That's kind of the angle. Well, that's definitely on brand with the Brittle Star approach, which is, again, as as the Internet's dad, you definitely have a vibe. Let's calm down. We can be funny about this, but let's just... I hope so. Keep our heads about us and be adult-ish as we consider this problem. Yeah, I mean, I, um, I hope so. I mean, I, I got worked up, you know, throughout the pandemic. There was one video I posted that I ended up, it did like crazy numbers right away when I was like, nope, it's too angry. It's way too angry. Uh, I ended up pulling the video. I, I referred to myself recently to someone as the middle-aged white guy whisperer. And it's like, I'm, I hope I, <laughs> other middle-aged straight white guys can look at me and go, oh, he's not freaking out over trans people, gay people, people of different races. It's like, this isn't, no one's coming for his cargo shorts and his beer and his back deck. It's just he's just yeah. making sure everyone gets a shot to have their own cargo shorts, beer, and back deck. That seems fair. Yeah, that's kind of my mo. So I'm I'm glad you say that because it makes me feel like it, it's translating, which is good. And I wanted to ask about the name "Stupid Apocalypse." Mm. How much you workshop that? That does have at least a slight uh, implication of anger a bit. I think there's a frustration yeah. level. Are you going to lean into that, or are you going to say, "I know you're thinking that, that we're all it's a dumbageddon and I'm pointing fingers." 
there's an introduction to the book which kind of addresses that kind of frames it nicely uh, right away, which says that we're all stupid, but we're all idiots. We all do dumb things. And that's just part of being human. And what you need to work towards is being aware of that and being able to pause and go, wait, am I being extra stupid and extra dumb right now? If I pull back a little bit, I'll get a better perspective of the situation. And maybe I'm overreacting. Maybe I'm being rage farmed. I think that's one of the things we've learned since 2016 is that social media has been weaponized to induce rage for the benefit of a small group of people. Those small group of people aren't restricted to one political party because the platforms know that if we're angry, we'll spend more time on things, weirdly. And uh, it's, it is political parties who, are, who know that they can capitalize on that. Political parties of all stripes kind of do it, some worse than others. So I think it's, it's that idea of being like, I already know I'm an idiot, but is this extra stupid? I'm going to be smart enough to realize I'm stupid and I might be being played. And then to kind of make decisions and, and act accordingly to that. It's like comments on social media now. Nice comments are nice, but comments are generally worthless to me because you've consumed the content. If you liked it, I'm so happy you've liked it. I don't need to know it. Hey, man, a download is a download. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> if you hate watched it, you still watch exactly. it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So I've been watching Days of Our Lives since I was, I don't know, 10, okay. something yeah, like that. Fair, right? yeah. It's currently in season 58. It's Amazing. been here for 58 years. Amazing. It used to be on NBC on free TV at 1 p.m. Eastern, yeah. rain or shine, except for during the Olympics. Is there a sponsorship <laughs> that I don't, I'm not aware of? Uh... <laughs> I wish there was. <laughs> And so I'm doing this thing where I can, I'm watching a couple episodes every day and have just been posting on my personal Facebook page yeah. when stuff is happening. And, you know, it's all the same characters. Sure. And so I've been sort of narrating like all of the changes, like the writers have recently discovered that people can be bisexual and that if they have more <laughs> bisexual people on the show, they can have more love triangles. Well, cause it, oh, because everybody's fair game if you're bisexual. <laughs> It's like yes, uh, it's like the ultimatum reality show or something like that, or, or Love Is Blind. Of course, they still have to keep this bank of like who's actually related to who. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's for the chat boards, right? That's you can yeah, keep it exactly. all. Aren't they brother and exactly. sister? Right. right. Yes. Well, that yeah. was. I remember when Lost came out. Lost was one of the first episodes oh. that had a a chat board online yeah. presence and. That's what gave birth to the book, Everything Bad is Good for You. The whole idea that the internet offers you more opportunities to interact with people, sure. bounce ideas off each other, bounce your theories off each yeah, other. Yeah. If you didn't get something, you could say, all right, who's he again? And you could yeah. research that and you could just be a much more enlightened consumer of things. Well, I and love then the when term, Damon um, Lindelof said that he had not sketched out the whole arc of the show no, at all. No and guff, just had which sort became of like painfully obvious. Yeah. Yes. First season, and then he was just paying attention to what people were saying in the chat rooms. Like, what? That was just demoralizing. Yes, to me. I know. Well, don't even get me started on the end of Lost. That was so disappointing. It was bona fide horrible and Doug and I were in the middle of the divorce and we're not living together anymore. And so there's nobody in the apartment that I could talk to about <laughs> the ending. The only thing I wanted to contact you about when we were in the process of getting a divorce was actual schadenfreude inducing political scandals. Did like, I, I mean, I remember at one point we were like in the middle of this like battle where we each thought we were trying to screw the other one off over yeah. and like and I sent him this text in the middle of the day that was like can we take a time out on the divorce proceedings because we need to talk about this Elliot Spencer scandal <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
But that, I mean, I remember that lost episode being just enraging. Yeah, exactly. Like, and then so enraging. Lost not only the last episode didn't, not only sucked, but it destroyed your marriage. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. That's, I mean. Let's file a class thanks, action two, two against Damon Lindelof. <laughs> yeah, and Carlton Cuse. They will both be hearing from our attorney. <laughs> Home wreckers. Exactly. I, I love the term rage farming, by the way, because it makes me think, all I could think about now is that Monsters, Inc. has become a documentary. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. That's totally it. <laughs> it's like uh, what we do in the shadows, if you watch that show, which is a fantastic show. Oh, yeah. I love that show. Uh, yeah. And uh, what's his face? Very F word forward this season, I will oh, say. Oh, excellent. Uh, fuck on. Fuck right. Uh, or fucking A. Right. Fucking A. That's what I was trying to say. Sorry. I sorry. I hard, hardly <laughs> ever swear. I don't know how to do it. Um, well, you're Canadian. Exactly. We've heard so, that about you. So yeah. Uh, Fuck has that extra you exactly. in it. Exactly. <laughs> but uh, it's like the energy vampire and what we do in the shadows on social media going, this is great. This is fantastic. And that's exactly it. <laughs> it's a, it's a, <laughs> so you have to, yeah, I mean, you have to kind of just like, I grew up across from a convenience store, beside a convenience store, beside another convenience store. There are three convenience stores and a grocery store within, I guess say for you Americans, a hundred yards from my house and, wow. and it's a very small community here and it's it was unusual and they all had weekly world news they all had national Enquirer, they all had like all the gossip mags and, and all that kind of tabloid papers and stuff and i think you kind of have to treat social media with that it's like oh this is a juicy story i don't know if it's true or not though i'm not going to rely on this as news so i'm just going to be like yeah i mean this is this is interesting but i'm not going to get upset about bat boy returning or bat boy getting married or something Right. Well, Men in Black said that was the best investigative journalism on the planet. <laughs> exactly, so. exactly. <laughs> so, well, speaking of social media, as I say, we talked about advertising and the whole point of you need to get your message out there. And you've been at this for mm. 10 years and the platforms and the strategies have shifted beneath our feet throughout that time. You're active on a lot of platforms. Yeah. So when you talk about your social media strategy, how has that evolved? And what, if anything, have you learned from working with Gregor? You can really invest a lot of time in trying to be platform specific and learning the ins and outs of algorithms and how to, you know, best time and place and format and length and ratios and all that kind of stuff. But then you just get really good at the platform and then the platform changes the algorithms and then you're starting all over again. I think the biggest lesson I've learned over the past 10 years, and Gregor, I think it sort of goes by this as well, is being platform agnostic. Your brand is your brand. And you should use these platforms as distribution points for your brand. For me, when I started out on Vine, I was fiercely loyal to Vine. And then Vine disappeared. And I had 1.2 million followers and they just went away. And I had been hesitant to like promote other platforms on Vine and hesitant to tell people like, hey, follow me on Facebook, follow me on Instagram. I felt it was like a betrayal of Vine for me to do that. But of course, Vine didn't care about me. They didn't care about me at all. Right. So I learned a lesson, a hard lesson from that. It kind of to be just like the Brittle Star brand is separate. It's not a Facebook brand. It's not an Instagram brand. It's not a TikTok brand. It's not a Threads brand. I'm on those platforms to maintain my brand and to make sure stuff gets out to people, the widest amount of people as possible, but it's not about the platforms themselves. Do you have a favorite? Do you have one that gives you the most uh, engagement and the most ROI? Um, I point? mean, honestly, still Twitter. And I despise what's happened to Twitter over the past year and a bit. Yeah, that's the paradox we're all coping uh, with. It's just, it is a it, powerful it's tool, a phenomenal but it's run by a powerful tool. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's an amazing platform. I just thought of it's that. It's good. You should tweet that. 
and then get immediately suspended. Yeah, and get, and locked, get out. locked out yeah, immediately. He's, he's, if I ever get big enough to matter, I'm sure I'll get knocked out. <laughs> the only thing I, I hope from that's come from the Twitter thing with uh, with Elon is that they'll see behind the curtain. I think a little bit. I think we have to get past this idea that billionaires are going to save us. They're just people. Well, and they think they're going to fight each other. What is this? I, well, <laughs> I mean, someone well, said, you know, the Elon had that three-hour MRI, so I'm oh, sure that's not going to happen now. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. I don't want to waste time talking about those guys. They're morons. Yeah, nor do I. Yeah. So you still find X, Twixter, whatever they call it now, that's uh, that's still a worthy thing yeah, to I work that, on? I think the, the scale to? might tip dramatically if Threads does desktop version and does better search. I think there's ways for Threads to suddenly tip the scale, but they're not there yet. That was a land grab, I think. You know, people set up their accounts to have them in case they needed sure. them, but yeah, exactly. no one's there I mean, anymore a, for the moment. It's anyway. pretty quiet, and it's a very different the way it's f- structured. Is it's based on interaction, it's based on engagement. Um, as someone pointed out, a repost of your post is worth nothing, but someone quoting your post is worth a lot more attention. Comments are way more valuable on Threads. Musk is so horrible that you think to yourself, yay, Zuckerberg, because I hate Facebook as well. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a big lift yeah. right there. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, well, if they did fight each other, then they'd be fighting each other. That would be something. I know. Like Facebook has our, is my biggest reach uh, and the biggest follower Ooh. count is on Facebook, but it's absolutely worthless to me. Yeah, and you had a huge Ooh. following with the uh, the morning show yeah, thing back in the day. Yeah, our live streams used to get 298,000 to 300,000 reach for every live stream we did, and that shrank down to 900. And that's when we decided we can't do this. Holy we can't do this anymore. Cow. It's just not worth it doing anymore. So frustrating. Did you consider going to YouTube? We did. We tried YouTube for a bit. We tried Twitch for a bit. But um, the morning show thing was a kiosk in a mall and Facebook was the mall. And when we tried to move it to YouTube or to Twitch, it was like putting a kiosk at the edge of town. It's like, sure, we might get some people yeah. or people who know where to find it. But right. people aren't just milling around at the city limits. So it didn't work. Wow. Why did your uh, viewership shrink on Facebook? Was it the Facebook algorithm? Well, a couple of things happened. Yeah, I mean, the algorithm was a big part of it. And they really started deprioritizing live streams in light of the Christchurch, New Zealand massacre, which was all Facebook oh. Live. So they suddenly felt okay. that there was it was hard to control or hard to police what was being broadcast. Uh, now, do I think they could have like opened it up to have to be reviewed? Like, hey, listen, we're doing this morning show. We've been doing it for five years. It's a husband and right. wife, and uh, we rarely, you know, commit mass murders. So, can we have a regular reach? Well, yeah. that's that requires more effort, which eats into the profits. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I think that's the thing about fa- the Facebook al- algorithm that's so frustrating is that it would make sense if they were saying. It's pay to play, right? Like if you pay to this professional level, then we'll show you to all your followers, right? And if you don't pay, then we'll show you to a certain percent. But there is no ability to actually reach all of your followers. Like you could probably leave a bag of gold on Mark Zuckerberg's front step, and he still wouldn't show you to all yeah, of your followers. Yeah, I mean, it's, and that's just well, he'd put that, that, that on the no stack sense. of all the other bags yeah, of gold exactly. he has. I think, it, yeah, with, with <laughs> Facebook, it doesn't make any sense from a capitalist perspective, from a socialist perspective. Like, yeah, nothing. What? How? Do, why are you building this big engine and then not actually using? I it? I think it's it, the problem is the way they it's sort of marketed, and meaning like the market structure of it is problematic for creators because. Facebook's focus is on keeping people stuck to the site. doesn't matter who's creating the content, just any content. If that keeps people stuck to the site, that's good, which is why you see so many 
compilations of like disaster videos and all that kind of stuff and car yeah. wrecks and lots and lots of big boobs and all that kind of stuff. And maybe that's just my feed. I don't know. <laughs> that was pretty telling. I, I don't see enough. Actually, I don't see enough. I don't see enough big boobs. So Zuckerberg, if you're listening, if you could tweak that. It was frustrating because you're right. If you just say, if it was pay to play, like, hey, I have 250,000 people. How much does it cost me to get to those people? And they set that value at whatever, let's say hypothetically $1,000, which of course it wouldn't be $1,000. It'd be like closer to like $50,000 or more. Then that $1,000 didn't become about 250,000 people. That became what the market decided that $1,000 was worth. So for example, I did a video that explaining candidate to Americans video. It already had 35 million views and the brand said, let's put $3,000 into boosting that on Facebook. And I was like, why? We've literally hit essentially every person in Canada with this ad. Right. They're like, you know, we're going to spend this extra money to see if we really send it over the top. And that $3,000 bought them 400,000 additional reach, like less than half a million. And they already had 35 million and they spent additional $3,000 for nothing. Right. So it's, it's frustrating. It's very frustrating. And of course, with the live show for us, there's no way to boost live streams as they're happening. You can boost them after you're done the broadcast, but not while they're happening, which I understand again, why it ha- you know, you wouldn't want someone with deep pockets and psychotic tendencies to be able to spend $10,000 of their life savings to go do something terrible. So I get it. Well, and the last thing I wanted to mention I, I, from the viewpoint of a creative, seeing what's going on with a writer strike mm-hmm. and an actor strike and the stance that the producers are taking yeah. in terms of <clears throat> how much human creativity is appreciated. And the onslaught of AI Mm -hmm. and how AI is replacing creatives in many ways. So when you think about your life as a creator, how do you feel threatened by AI? And what do you think creators in general can do to offset its impact? I think a couple of things. I think that the first thing to realize about the development of AI is that it's been going on for a long, long time. uh, And that it's also to realize that it's, it's progressing and improving at an incredible rate, exponential rate. And then finally, and the most important thing is, it's not going to be stopped. There's no way we're putting that cat back in the bag. It's, there's, it, this is, there's way too many upsides for the bottom line of too many people for that not to stick around. One of the things that creatives have to kind of really be aware of is two things. One is a piece of content, whether that be, and I say that in the most crass terms, like a, a blog post, a piece of music, uh, Stuff. Stuff, yeah, it's just content, right? It's just it's, it's occupying time and space. That's it. I think that that itself, it, AI is going to, if not already, devalue that tremendously. I think what it's not going to be able to devalue is I haven't figured out the proper way to articulate this yet, but essentially backstoried content. An article, period, is just an article. Doesn't matter. It could be good or bad to me or whatever. Who cares? An article written by Doug French is an article written by Doug French. That's got an intrinsic value. And it may be word for word the same as something else, but it's got a value because I know where it's coming from. And there's a whole ethos and there's a whole perspective and outlook. And there's a whole backstory, at least that I know of, that as a consumer that makes, that gives added value, gives a little bit of X factor to the content itself. That's a little bit airy fairy, but I think that's kind of important. It's like I think anyone could, I think A and I could make a probably make a, a video as good or funnier than I can make, but so can lots of people. But people like the videos that I make because I'm making them. As I when I did my podcast series, remember my son Owen when he was producing it, 
was like, I don't know if anyone's going to listen to this. And he said, no, people are going to listen to this because you're doing it. It's not about the podcast. It's about you. You are doing it. That's It's that human connection that people want to be a part of. That's what they're interested in. That's what's drawing them in. If you suck after that, then they're only going to be drawn in once. But if it's good and they have that ability to connect you as a human to this and this human experience that they're sharing with you, then that's a definite plus. It's just our connection to the content and our connection to the creation of the content adds something to it that I don't think AI is necessarily going to be able to replicate entirely. That said, you know, if you type in something to chat GPT, it says, give me a monologue in the tone of Norm MacDonald. It does a pretty damn good job of doing that. However, we know it's not Norm that wrote it, and it's different from a piece of comedy that Norm actually delivered himself. And I think that's kind of the, the value. And of course, there's also the, the very, very least, it's like any new tool. You're not going to lose your job to AI. You're going to lose your job to someone who's really good at AI. <laughs> that type of idea. Yeah. So. Right. I think that dovetails well with the idea that the advertising model is giving way to the subscription model. Yeah. Because people are opting in and that way you get open rates and engagement yeah. up on the 60, 70% because people are there because they expressly want to be yeah. there. Have you found that with Substack at all? Have you found that with when people are tuning in to see you in particular, how Substack has refined your I audience? I think a little bit. And I think there's also what's interesting about Substack and Patreon is that people are just keen to be able to support. And if there's an easy way for them to support you, they will. They don't necessarily want anything extra special. They just want to be able to say, hey, I appreciate this which isn't a great business model. <laughs> it's hard to rely on that. Um, yeah. But at the same time, it's also lovely because it's like, okay, well, this is now people who are actively interested in consuming the content I'm making. It's not like, you know, when people used to get hired or hire me for brand campaigns on Vine or something, it was very much a media buy mentality of like, how many followers do you have? Great. We'll pay you this much money based on that. And now brands and agencies are much more like, who are your followers? What is your content? What do you do? And okay, that's going to be a much better ROI for us. And that's worth this much to us. Numbers still matter, but it's also at the same time, it's more about tailoring that in and making sure you're selling to people who want to buy. What am I thinking here? I'm having a Mitch McConnell <laughs> moment. <laughs> I think fine. every episode should end like this. Welcome to Awkward Silences <laughs> with Doug and Magda. <laughs> Are you in your 50s? That's Me? something. No, that's how you're ending. Yeah. That's your end yeah. script. Oh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And actually, that's good. Your scripted part could be me? <laughs> right. Every podcast ends like The Sopranos. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, that's the nature of a conversation with Brittle Star, yeah. just because there's so much wisdom there. You want to be very circumspect in terms of how you plummet. I really appreciate the time, Stuart. I'm so glad you have this new book coming out. Uh, Welcome to the Stupid Apocalypse. Uh, what's the date it opens so up again? September 19th. It's, it's available for pre-sale now. Available for pre-sale now. September 19th it arrives. September 19th and in the UK, November 25th. Listeners, thank you so much for tolerating episode 14 of the When the Flames Go Up podcast. Our guest has been Stuart Brittlestar Reynolds, and you will find all the places you can find him, which is virtually everywhere. And we'll be back next week with another episode featuring a guest who has shitty American healthcare like we do. <laughs> awesome. Thanks so much, guys. Okay. It was super fun. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.